Anyway, what better to kick off segment two than when Dick Dale's version of Miserloo, which Quentin Tarantino did use for the opening credits of Pulp Fiction. I know this because in my next to last stop in the trip, uh, which, in, which was in Norway, I uh, drove 500 kilometers from Oslo to Bergen and was getting uh, antsy about not having more music. And it turned out that the, uh, the soundtrack from Pulp Fiction was an excellent selection. But uh, let, let's go back to Russia. I must say, jetting, uh, jetting uh, around the world here was a real uh, education uh, this summer. Things have changed in the aviation world, and not for the better. Now, with the aviation fuel prices being what they are, the airlines are liking to run the planes pretty darn full. Oh, and by the way, if you hold tickets with JetBlue, or are contemplating flying with JetBlue, my advice would be, weigh your alternatives. I'm sure that nine times out of ten, they do just fine. But uh, as it happened on my very last flight on this trip, uh, which would have gotten me from JFK in New York to Sacramento, well, I got to experience that, uh, that tenth flight. But I'm um, saving that one for the next section. Anyway, getting over to Russia. Or getting over anywhere. It's always a good reminder to, uh, to tell you to take along an extra layer. Airplanes can be cold. Try and wear some loose clothing. Try not to overindulge in caffeine or alcohol unless you like climbing over people and making your way back to the airplane lavatory many times during a long flight. And by all means, take along some good books. Uh, I grabbed several books out of my shelf that I've been meaning to read for years in some cases. And, uh, you know, well, for example, John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. I've heard that was a good book since high school, and that was a while back. I've been meaning to read it ever since high school, and, well, finally got around to it this trip. I, I was somewhat amused to note that on my flight on Delta from Atlanta to Moscow, uh, they had a trivia game on video. And uh, this will not surprise Mr. McMillan one bit, but with an hour to go on the flight, I managed to crash my computer. You wouldn't think a guy could be able to do that, but somehow I managed. I do have a knack for these things. Now, and, and, and I, don't, I don't mean the plane's navigational computer. I mean my video console on the, on the seat in front of me. I, I, mean, I mean, like, screen went to black. It <laughs> would not reactivate. But anyway, as I mentioned at the top of the program, uh, this correspondent was last in Russia when it was the USSR. And I'd like to advise all of you out there on the, the far left, uh, people that go to, like, the Marxist school, and people who use words like proletariat and bourgeoisie in, in their speech, and they're not being ironic. In other words, those of you out there who think that communism works, or at least could work, my advice is wake up, smell the coffee. Back in 1991, people were incredibly ill-dressed. Food was hard to come by. In fact, I remember oh so well going into numerous stores in the town of Irkutsk out in Siberia and finding that they were selling, well, it looked like they were selling pig's feet and, and what looked to be, and I never did figure out exactly what they were, they looked to be pickled apples. I observed uh, the meat counter in numerous places appeared to have nyet meat. <laughs> it's not to say that you couldn't find food, but it, you know, it, it sometimes wasn't so easy. 
In fact, I took along my old phrase book from, from that era, which was designed for, you know, phrases to use in the USSR. And in fact, here's some advice on, on how to, uh, according to this phrase book, on how to go out and buy some meat. Now, note, this, is, this book was copyright 1990. According to the phrase book, keywords to look for. Miasa, butchers. In the state-run shops, meat has been scarce in the USSR for a long time. And when it is available, it is of poor quality. There is more choice at the markets, but as with other foodstuffs, the prices are prohibitive. Well, thankfully, that is no longer the case. Now, the prices in, in, in Moscow are, are not so good. In fact, I noticed that in the International Herald Tribune, or it may, may have been the, uh, the Moscow Times, I forget which, they had an article about uh, expats living in Moscow and noted that it is now the world's most expensive city. I considered myself lucky to get a hotel that was only $200 a night. Of course, I did worse than that in New York City a few months back. But honestly, back in, back in 1991, I remember being hungry, walking around uh, Leningrad, now St. Petersburg again, thinking, boy, we need to get some food. And some food, I could smell some cooking food, thinking, that, that well, we got to get something. Went over to the restaurant. Door was locked. It was, as I recall, about 1.15, which is lunchtime. Naturally, the workers in the restaurant would wish to have their lunch, so they put up, put up a sign, locked the doors, and ate. To my astonishment, uh, this time, I found that you could walk across the street from my hotel, and there was a little 24-hour market. And uh, they had a surprisingly good selection of, of food there. Uh, you know, beat, beats, your, beats your 7-11 selection by, by quite a wide margin. And one thing that's a pretty good value for your tourist ruble, beer. About half the price of what it is here. You know, it sounds like a trivial matter, but if you'd, if you'd seen the country when it was hard to find food, it's, uh, boy, it's a breath of fresh air. What, uh, what really showed me that things were, uh, were different now was that, uh, you know, in, in leaving the airport in the taxi, we'd driven more, no more than three miles when I looked over and there was a bright, new, gleaming IKEA store. So, uh, yeah, the Cold War is definitely over. And uh, I remember when I was a kid reading that in Moscow they had the world's largest department store. It was called Gum. When I was there in 1991, uh, and, we're in, and it's adjacent to Red Square, uh, my friend Misha just said, don't bother. Well, it turns out it, it never really was a department store. It was always a series of shops, and it had all kinds of exotic, high-priced, you know, designer goods which were in, also in a sort of an underground uh, mall, which was just outside of Red Square. In a way, it appears that shopping in Moscow these days is pretty much like shopping in New York, Paris, or London. Although in my brief a tour of, of one of the, the shops in Gum, I walked in and they had chess sets and things like that, and I was quite struck by little painted figurines in the style of tin soldiers of the participants at the Yalta Conference. There was a little tin, Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin. They were really quite well done. If the price tag hadn't have been $500 for the set, I would have considered getting them. But anyway, I, I don't know whether you've heard this one, but, uh, but Lenin, who's been basically, you know, a Disneyland-style tourist attraction in the USSR. He's been, you know, the, the cadaver or, or, you know, wax model or whatever it really is uh, purporting to be Lenin. He's been laying there since he died in 1924. 
I didn't know this till this trip, but but apparently his request had been uh, to to be laid to rest next to his mother, at uh, in in their tomb up in Saint Petersburg. Joseph Stalin, however, had other ideas. He thought he was going to uh, you know make uh, make Lenin the poster child of the Russian Revolution, which he did. But apparently Boris Yeltsin gave uh, gave thought of you know a couple years back to maybe finally granting Lenin his wish and you know. Uh, and stop his being a tourist attraction. In fact, possibly the most startling moment of the uh, the, the entire trip uh, came um, on my last uh, last day in Moscow when I observed uh, the sound of a procession, uh, some some music being played, and I looked over and there were people carrying large banners, large red flags of the Communist Party. The flag that was, you know, the Soviet Union's flag from probably 1920 to their breakup in 1991. This was, in fact, a pro-communist demonstration, which was tolerated by the authorities who let, uh, let the marchers, uh, you know, work their way into Red Square and then turn around and come back out again. Now, the transition from a, uh, you know, a, a, a command economy, you know, a state run by the Communist Party to a, a more... Uh, a more open society, econ- an economy more in the style of what we'd call the mixed economies of, of Europe or America. Well, it, it's been a rocky road. Uh, a lot of people lost their pensions. A lot of older folks lost everything, which, of course, under the Soviet Union didn't necessarily amount to that much. But if you worked your whole life in a socialist system, you did sort of expect to be taken care of in your old age, you know. Maybe not real well, but at least everybody was in the same boat. But at any rate, make no mistake about it, there are some people in Russia who would like to see a return to communism. And in fact, I was intensely curious uh, near Red Square as to who these people might be, so I, uh, I scrunched in for a closer look. And it was curious, because um, in 1991, Russians walking down the street were dressed so poorly that you knew you weren't in America. That's no longer the case. Walking down the streets of Russia, people look pretty much like they do in any other, in an American city. The, the women have, you know, designer handbags from Italy in some cases, and, you know, their hairstyles are quite smart, very attractive, and, you know, I mean, what you expect in, in Western society. Well, I, I gotta say, back in 1991, you had to feel for the Russian women just, just for how their hair looked. Oh, not not to say you still couldn't find such styles like in, you know, Arkansas, maybe some of the more impoverished areas of Appalachia. And and I should inject the fact that, you know, I've always been disgusted at, you know, stylistic changes and how people are, you know, are are, are buying this idea that you have to go buy a new set of uh, clothes every year or two years just, just to look, you know, just to look like you belong in GQ. But I think it's rare to find someone who's that much a slave to fashion, whereas uh, the kind of styles I used to wear in the old Soviet Union, well, they were the styles that were being worn by the people carrying the red banners around. They all looked exactly as I remember people from 1991 looking. Which is to say, hideously ill-dressed. And these communist demonstrators, I, I, I went out to, I mingled around with them and took a look at them, and, well, they just didn't look like the sharpest knives in the drawer. 
They look like the kind of people who in American cities aren't carrying communist flags. They're, they're carrying shopping bags or alternatively pushing shopping carts. Looking him over pretty well, and I, and I tried, I would say, my, in my guess, not one of them would have ever been awarded the Employee of the Month award. Nor did any of them resemble the kind of people that, uh, you know, would have won that scholarship to college. They were a motley crew of what, uh, you know, for, for lack of a better word, I would just have to describe as just losers. About half of them look like the kind of people that have loud conversations with themselves walking down the street. I don't pretend to be any prognosticator about uh, Russia's political future, but uh, you know, judging by what I saw, I don't think communism's coming back. But uh, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, I, I was trying to read 10 Days That Shook the World while there. And I must say, Having gotten through it, it is a spectacular piece of reporting. I can see why the book is so well regarded. It impressed my teacher back in high school who first told me about this book, uh, that, that Reed is the only American that we know about anyway, who was honored by being buried in the Kremlin. He was a hell of a good journalist, and uh, Ten Days That Shook the World is a hell of a good book. If you've never seen uh, Warren Beatty's uh, Magnificent Reds from 1981, uh, I recommend that you do so. I, I had not done so till last night, <laughs> but I've corrected that deficiency and can highly recommend it. At any rate, uh, let, let's, let's fast forward again to when I was tooling across uh, the plains of Russia. And by the way, I can vouch for the news reports that say that Russia is headed for its biggest uh, uh, grain harvest in 30 years. I witnessed some bountiful uh, grain fields uh, all along the highway. They had wheat and rye and, uh, and, and buckwheat. It was surprisingly hot in Siberia when I got there. Uh, and generally on that day, it was like 34 to 36, which is, you know, in the 90s. One point, Sergei pointed to the thermometer and looked at me and said in his limited English, people say, Siberia, cold. And he like, <laughs> grabbed himself and pointed to the thermometer. As if to say, well, not always, obviously. When I was in the travel agency and they first proposed a driver, I was thinking, oh, I just want to drive myself. Then I thought about it a minute and realized, you know, with the number of cops and, and, you know, I don't know what the roads are like, having a Russian driver is a very good idea. And a trait about Russians I've observed, which is very, very admirable, is that when they take responsibility for you, they will see to it that you are taken care of. All I can say is, thank God he was there. If I'd been trying to take a bus and find where my hotel was along the Katoon River in the Altai Mountains, I would have never found it. But uh, find it we did and went in to register and I purchased tickets when I was, was in Novosibirsk. That was my, my first order of business there before I left. The Russians are huge fans of, of getting out to the country. Their facilities tend to be a little more rustic than what we're used to. Once you get used to it, I guess you sort of realize it's, uh, for lack of a better word, a little more ecological, less of an impact on, on the forest in which they put uh, cabins and such. At least that's the way it struck me. One area where Russia still needs to catch up is they're big on bureaucracy. They're big on taking your passport and keeping it uh, in the office of the hotel. In Moscow, for example, they told me they would give it to me when I went out. And they're still supposed to, uh, to, to, to basically register you with the police which presumably my uh, hotel in Moscow did. Oh, and, and by the way, when you want to go to Russia, you still need an invitation 
to get a visa. Although it turns out if you book a hotel, they will invite you. But as we were getting fixed up in the registration desk, uh, and of course this, this was a little frustrating for both Sergey and I, not speaking each other's language, except knowing a few words and, and trying to use my phrase book, into the picture swept the Angel of Siberia. Yulia, a student of language at uh, the nearby University of Barnal, uh, was working at uh, this facility as her summer job. She immediately allowed me to be able to communicate with Sergey and basically acted as a facilitator to ensure that things were going well for me. She pointed out also that there were two other English speakers there, a couple of British boys, she said. The boys, uh, age 30, Matthew and David, turned out to be a couple of fine fellows. Yulia pointed out that it was quite fortunate that I had a couple of, uh, of people that spoke the same language. I said, is, is it rare for you to get English speakers here? And she pondered a moment and thought about it and said, well, no, last year we had a couple of Germans that spoke English. Well, the Katoon River Valley is, uh, is quite stunningly scenic. I wasn't surprised by that, but I was surprised to look up in the air and see ultralights flying above the, uh, the canopy. The British boys and I thought that would be just a great thing to investigate, so... Uh, with uh, Sergey coming along and Yulia acting as our translator, we went out to check about, check out renting, or we went to check out uh, what it would take to to get a ride on one of these planes. Our understanding was that it would take about a thousand rubles, about forty five bucks, but that they weren't flying right then because uh, well the air had gotten too unstable. So we vowed to come back later in the evening when the air would be more stable, and they said that uh, we'd have a better chance of, of going up. And in the meantime, decided to kill some time mountain bike riding. So we three Anglophones shelled out for an hour's worth of uh, a bicycle and took off around this large meadow. And uh, three quarters of the way through that adventure, I managed to get my bike to make a rather abrupt halt, and uh, which caused me to come over the top and, as it turned out, crack my rib. Shook it off at first and said, oh, it's probably just a bruise. And in fact, rather ill-advisedly then, Later that afternoon, swam across the Katoon River. Didn't feel too bad uh, that, uh, that afternoon, but let's just say for the rest of the trip, it was a good thing I packed along some Vicodin. We went back to the makeshift airfield about dusk, and uh, the air had cooled off, and indeed we were able to all go aloft. And we're going to get our web guru to see if we can't post some of those pictures on our website. In fact, Matthew and I went up uh, at the same time to take pictures of each other flying around. It was pretty exciting, but as Matthew pointed out before we went aloft, and he wasn't really sure what the, the capabilities of these aircraft were. And I must confess, this did prey on my mind slightly as my, uh, my gung-ho Russian pilot was putting us into stalls and then uh, shoving the nose down to pick up speed again uh, at about 1,500 feet over the field. I was fairly confident uh, that the plane could withstand these maneuvers, but uh, not, not so confident that I was not preferring that he was, you know, not just flying on the straight and level. Turned out that the boys had, uh, had miles to go the next day, Friday, the big day, eclipse day, and they were going to go back to Novosibirsk and see it. Now, the stunning thing about the plains of Siberia is how big these rivers are and how, how huge the beaches are lining the rivers. Folks were planning to go down to the river and, and just uh, observe it from there. As I mentioned earlier, the, the eclipse was going right over Novosibirsk and Barnal, so you didn't have to leave the city to see it. 
But with the odds of clouds out in the plains, I thought I thought I was better off in the mountains. It turned out it, it probably was a wash. The next morning after breakfast, as the boys shoved off, I, I, I turned to Yulia and said, it's a shame you can't come with us uh, to go see the eclipse. And she said, I can go. So we shoved off at like 11 in the morning to go look for the eclipse, which was taking place at about 5 local time. And uh, this might be a good time to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax, a special edition recounting adventures in, uh, in Asia and Europe. I'm Douglas Everett, and I can't think of some better music for Mr. McMillan to roll here than a little bit more of Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. 